0: So, the last time we met, or if you listened to it on on the um, website, I talked about how the Beatitudes are perhaps best understood as descriptions of a whole way of life that we, primarily as a community rather than just as individuals, uh, a way of life that we are called to live, a life that's modelled on Jesus, and that bears witness to the transforming reality of the kingdom of God. So the first and the last Beatitudes uh, make reference to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And I suggest that the, that the Beatitudes kind of function or should function in a twofold way for us uh, as followers of Jesus. One as a source of comfort and reassurance that God's kingdom will eventually triumph, that evil will eventually be vanquished, that sorrow and suffering will eventually end. We've got it on the lips of Jesus to to guarantee that hope. So a source of comfort, but on the other hand, also a source of discomfort, because they summon us to a way of life uh, that comprises of actions that correspond with these qualities and these virtues that the the parables um, highlight. Remember, one German scholar talked about them as declarations of war on poverty, hunger, violence, misery, and injustice. So they're also a source of discomfort. So that implies that the Beatitudes are sort of radical demands for radical followers. But they've become so familiar to most of us that they've lost much of that original bite. So there's one (coughs) New Testament scholar who... Uh, Wrote a piece around the the teaching of Jesus and made this comment. He said, The most dangerous passages in the Bible are the familiar ones because you don't really listen to them. The sharp stone of God's word, smoothed down by the river of time, no longer cuts. Instead of being challenged by hard thoughts or hard choices, we lean back and savour pretty words. No passage in the Gospels is more exposed to this familiarity, that contentment, than the Beatitudes in Matthew's Gospel. Nine Beatitudes, nine spiritual bonbons. No sooner is blessed are the poor intoned, than eyes become glassy or moist, the heart is strangely warmed, and no one notices that Jesus is the revolutionary is heaving a verbal grenade into our garden so I hope what I can do for the next few minutes is is try and realize what a grenade these these blessings are you know, how, 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 how radical and how uh, disconcerting they really are if we how explosive they are if we can sort of put ourselves back and, and try and capture just a bit of what uh, of what it was that Jesus was trying to highlight. So the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, uh, seems to function as a kind of a summary of all the other beatitudes. It's a kind of, and it's sense, you could say that this text is all about this particular statement, and all the other beatitudes sort of unpack the meaning of what this notion of being poor in spirit is. They define and they describe what's entailed in being poor in spirit, so it involves being merciful. It involves being meek, it involves being mournful, it involves being persecuted, and so on. So the other Beatitudes got to unpack this this statement about uh, this quality that Jesus is esteeming. And they also unpack what this blessing there is is the kingdom of heaven actually means. So to possess the kingdom of heaven is to be comforted, to inherit the earth to be satisfied to see god and so on so this kind of you know this this is the thought if you like that all the rest of the beatitudes kind of um uh, cascade from and, and try and, and try and add meaning to so you may have noticed that in luke's version of the beatitudes and luke's version in many ways these are more radical because he he pairs them together with a set of woes about the the opposite. (laughs) So they really are quite discomforting. But in Luke's version of this beatitude at the beginning, he says, Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Whereas Matthew has, blessed are the poor in spirit. So at first glance, it appears in Matthew's version that, that Matthew is kind of spiritualizing or interiorizing uh, this this poverty, so Luke's external poverty becomes Matthew's spiritual poverty, which is far less disturbing to us. Uh, it's far more um, easy to cope with this idea of being spiritually poor than actually being materially poor. But appearances, I think, in this case, are quite misleading. Because when you look at each of these expressions in the context of the gospel in which they occur, it's clear that both phrases really are referring to the same, the same group or the same kind of, of, of experience. So the poor or the poor in spirit, I think, refer to those who face an external situation of need and vulnerability, you know, external pressure. Uh, An inability to guarantee their own security because of poverty or oppression or prejudice or whatever it is. So, people who face that external need and in that situation adopt an internal posture of trusting independence on God's love and God's power to protect and to provide for them. So, Luke highlights the external need, the, the, the desperate vulnerability that these people are in. And Matthew highlights the inner response to that exterior need of of turning in, in dependence uh, on God. But I think both dimensions are assumed in, in both versions. The, the New English Bible um, translates this phrase, poverty in spirit, or blessed are the poor in spirit, and it captures this sense of dependence on God by saying, "Blessed are those who know their need of God." So that's the way the, the translators of that uh, version tried to capture the sense of, of of a response of dependence on God. And I think it's I, mean, I think it's a very insightful and, and very appropriate way of rendering this uh, notion. The one thing it misses, I think, though, is the sense of of desperation uh, that I, I think is implied in the in the original beatitude. So the poverty of spirit is more than a kind of settled piety on the part of the spiritually sincere. Rather it's a response of chosen dependence on God, which doesn't come easy to most of us, choosing dependence on God in full face of the extremity of need and vulnerability that that the person is facing. So it's that sense of, you know, things are really bad. I'm really at risk. I'm really vulnerable. And in that context, I choose to trust in God for protection and poverty. That's poverty of spirit. We think about it, poverty of spirits, not just being spiritual. I mean, it's being, you know, that sense of poverty, that sense of real, of real reaching to the very uh, depth of your experience of vulnerability. But why are they blessed? Why does Jesus bless those who experience that sense of dependence on God in face of need? Because, as the psalm in our, our liturgy points out, because God never ignores the cries of the desperate. God never ignores the pleas for, for help. Instead, Jesus says, God gives them the kingdom. He intervenes to help. But I think just two qualifications to make about this, though, because uh, these things can be so easily, I think, spun the wrong way. It's not the extreme need itself. It's not the poverty or the oppression or the sickness or the violence or the bereavement that is the blessing. That's not not why you're blessed. Some of those things... Can be the result of evil it's not the experience of need itself that is a blessing but that can become an occasion for blessing insofar as it drives us in desperation to god because we know that god never ignores the cries of the desperate so it's not the need you're not blessed because you know you're being tortured somewhere you're blessed because, in that experience of need, and you turn to, to God, God God is there. God never ignores the cries of the poor. I think the second thing to say about this is that God's response uh, is that the it is the fact of God's response uh, to the needy more than its immediate, sort of, tangible benefits that is a primary source of, of blessing. It's not so much what God does as the fact that God listens, that God is there, that God is present. God's response may not be, maybe, usually isn't, I don't know, but it may not be to deliver the needy from their need or or the suffering from their suffering uh, or the persecuted from the persecution. Not to deliver them materially, but the very fact that God comes alongside and shows support to and shares companionship with the needy in that situation is itself the blessing. That confers on the needy. And again, if you can put yourself back into the sort of our first century worldview, we, we, over the summer I read this huge, big, fat book about the impact of Christianity on Western culture. And so many of the things that we take for granted as being sort of things that any developed person accepts as true, um, wasn't always the case. I mean a lot of that's the, the, the gospel seeping into our into our culture. Mm-hmm. And put yourself back into the first century world and the and the you know the the rule of, of Rome, um, it's people to, to, to be assured that the poor, the oppressed, the persecuted, the marginalized are the ones that God gives his attention to is a sign of incredible dignity to these people when they lived in a society and in a culture and in a value system, that would have told them that, that, that they didn't matter, they didn't count, that they were trash. And also, again, to think of the, last, of the last talk, the blessing that comes with this experience includes the blessing of belonging to a community of care and of solidarity and of, of joy. Uh, a community that is committed to bear one another's burdens uh, Jürgen Moltmann, you may know that name, a very famous German theologian. Um, one of the articles I read said this at one point, just a sentence: "He said, Jesus doesn't set the poor on the road to social to social advancement. Jesus doesn't set the poor on the road to social advancement. He sets them on the road to fellowship, mm-hmm. whose culture is a culture of sharing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." The second beatitude defines this poverty of spirit in terms of mourning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Uh, Ever since the time of the early church fathers, this beatitude has been taken to refer to the mourning of sinners repenting of their personal sins. Uh, Blessed are those who mourn over their sins because they will be comforted by God's forgiveness. But Jesus, I think, is alluding to what was his favorite text, which is Isaiah 61. Remember, that was the text that he read uh, when he was in the Nazareth synagogue. Opened the scroll and read this text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim the liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So if that's the, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it is, if that's the text that Jesus has rattling around in his, his mind when he utters this statement, blessed are those who mourn, then the same sense of mourning is probably upperm- uppermost in his mind because in this text, Isaiah 61, the mourning is the grieving of those who are suffering oppression and violence and injustice. Both their own, but also as members of Israel being under a state of, of oppression. And I think the same thought is probably here uh, on in Jesus' mind. The mourning in the Beatitude describes a sense of grieving over the whole sorry state of God's world. A sense of grieving over a world where evil triumphs where cruelty and greed mar creation, where sickness and death stalk as they do today, uh, astonishingly through the pandemic, where wicked people do unspeakable things to the weak and helpless. So the first expression of poverty of spirit then is a deep distress at the anguish of God's world. A discontent with the status quo, a longing for the coming of God's healing justice. And God promises to comfort those who mourn, for theirs is the kingdom of God, for theirs is the reign of God. I guess it's our responsibility to do the mourning, though, to learn to sing the psalms of lament along with the songs of triumph. The poor in spirit are then depicted as the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Uh, actually just while I was just sort of revising these, these notes, I and mean, I've been thinking of this special for many years, but I just saw something that I hadn't 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 really realized before because um the, the word for meekness, I mean, people always ask me, and I talk about this, stuff, what, what does it mean being gentle? Does it mean being humble? Does it mean being poor? I mean, what does this word meekness mean? And I, I think it, it, it has that same combination of external circumstances and internal response that I've just talked about with the, uh, the poor in spirit. So meekness, on the one hand, denotes an external condition of powerlessness, of being dispossessed, of being disenfranchised, of being disinherited that's a good word because of what the blessing uh, brings to be meek is to be somebody on the margins who has no power has no no control over the things that affect them, yet it also has this internal sense of 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 a demeanor of gentleness and humility and graciousness rather than aggressiveness and vengefulness so in that situation of being powerless, having a, a, a response of gentleness and humility, and graciousness rather than anger, and and vengefulness, and again, in the ancient world, meekness in both senses—you know, both being a member of the of the of the of the margins, and also being somebody who you know was sort of humble and not not aggressive and not self. Uh, vaunting and so on, in both senses of meekness, it was a quality that was despised in the ancient world uh, there 's no sense of obligation to people like that i mean they they, they, they were they weren 't worth anything in a sense, you could say uh, notwithstanding what I just said about the way the gospel has already filtered its way through our culture in a sense, it still is kind of despised. Uh, in the sort of capitalist, neoliberal, market-driven world that we live in, it's the ambitious, the driven, the ruthless, the go-getter that is the one who uh, um, is esteemed. You know, rather than the unemployed. Who, in fact, it was just it was just a trailer on TV. Just saw it before of, of a program about the poor in New Zealand and. And um, the woman said, you shouldn't judge. You know, a person who is really locked into poverty, you shouldn't judge. People feel judged if they're in that situation. I once heard, and this is not a up, made-up illustration, I actually remember hearing it, actually in real life, <laughs> um, on, on the radio uh, about you know, 30 years ago or so, when neoliberalism was... was um, they called it a revolution. It was more like a coup d'etat when they you know, <laughs> took charge of society. Um, I heard a business leader say on the radio, the meek may well inherit the earth, but they're damn well not going to get the title deeds to it. Oh, you know, those, are not the people, those are not the people that succeed in the economy. Jesus says the exact opposite to that business leader. Jesus commends meekness as the quality that God prizes, and he promises that in the long run, the meek shall get the title deeds to the earth. It's actually a remarkable assertion, the meek shall inherit the earth. So in everyday life, possession of territory is generally achieved either through wealth or through force or through politics. It's the strongest, the richest, or the most devious who win the most territory. Here, Jesus literally promises the world to those who are humanly powerless and who are dedicated to gentleness and humility. That's really radical. <laughs> you know, that, especially in his day, but even more, even, even in many ways still today. When will it happen? When will they inherit the earth? When the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. When justice is restored, when planet earth is renewed, when creation is healed, and the meek of God's kingdom, those who are denied rights of possession in the present order, shall belong in a way that they don't experience at the moment. So I think that the three implications that I would take from this, this astonishing um, statement of blessing, the first is that we must care for the earth. I mean, if um, we're going to inherit the earth or the meek are going to inherit the earth and we want to be amongst them, then surely you've got to care for inheritance even now. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus is talking about is here identified with inheriting the earth. So getting the meek into heaven is not the ultimate goal of redemption, but bringing the the, the reality of heaven, of restored creation, down to this fallen and broken world, bringing the reality of heaven down to earth. And if that's that's what God's on about, if that's what redemption is on about, then surely we should care for our inheritance here and now. So there's a kind of environmental mandate implied in this blessing. We also must care for the weak and the oppressed on the earth. If God is on the side of the meek, those who are denied power and dignity and rightful participation, then surely so should we. The Kingdom of God is especially good news for such people, Jesus says, and I guess it's our task to show how and why it is both here and in the future and then thirdly, I think we must practice meekness in all that we do, so our methods must match our values. we can't rely, and you know would to God that the Church had realized this from the day day one. We wouldn't be in quite the situation we're in now. We cannot rely on violence and wealth and institutional power to extend God's kingdom. It's not getting people into positions of power. Now, I don't know how many times I've heard that in my life? Um, I remember my mother once saying, "Wouldn't it be wonderful if they had a Christian president?" Well, every president that's <laughs> ever been in the White House has been a Christian, so-called. Uh, well, I've got a very Christian one now. Yeah, that's right. But that, the point is, that's not the way God's kingdom advances in the world. We serve a meek and crucified <coughs> king, and we must do so in, in meekness. Which leads to the next beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Again, the imagery is quite striking here. Jesus takes the two strongest biological drives we have as metaphors for a craving, a human craving for righteousness. Again, extremely powerful to his first hearers in the hot, arid Middle East where hunger and thirst were constantly haunting realities. So using this metaphor shows that Jesus is not talking about a nodding assent or a mental agreement with the demands of righteousness, but a passionate, energetic commitment to see righteousness done, a longing so intense that it drives us to action, just as hunger compels us to eat and thirst compels us to drink, so hungering and thirsting for righteousness compels us to work for the thing that we are hungry and thirsty for, for for righteousness. What is this righteousness that we are supposed to be so desperate for? Well, um, some think that it refers to a righteous status before God, a longing to be put into a righteous relationship with God. And if you hunger for that, then you will be satisfied. But in the Gospels, the word righteousness, the noun righteousness, more often than not refers to moral conduct rather than to some kind of spiritual or forensic justification before God in the way that Paul sometimes uses uh, the language. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to crave after what is right. To long to see, to long to see God's moral will done on earth as it is in heaven. To see human life lived as God intends it to be lived, both individually and also collectively. And in that sense, righteousness is this beautiful biblical word. I mean, it's almost obsolete now but it's really such a beautiful word when you, when you just um, think about it. The concept of righteousness, the biblical concept of righteousness, includes justice. What we mean by justice because we use the word justice to refer to collective righteousness, to social righteousness. And so when Jesus is talking about hunger and thirsting for righteousness, He's pronouncing God's blessing on those who strive to see God's healing justice done in an unjust world. Not just those who think it's a good idea in principle, but those who yearn for it with the the craving of hunger and thirst, the primitive craving of hunger and thirst. So where is that passionate longing most obvious? Where do you find People longing to see God's justice done on Earth. In Beverly Hills? In the White House? Or the Pentagon? Or (laughs) Remarillo? Or Roseneath? (laughs) Or Brooklyn? Or Highbury? (laughs) Where do you find that craving for God's justice? You find it most intensely amongst those who are victims of injustice. And when we can identify with their need, even if we don't share as we don't, if we don't share that experience of oppression, if we can learn to identify with their need, then we will begin at least to share something of their craving. I remember a guy um, who did his his thesis, I can't remember what it was was on now, but, it's a very simple idea, but for some reason I've always found it very helpful. See, so, you know, you, you have a normal kind of bell curve describing any population, mm-hmm. and you know, see so you have a, have a small part. Of, it's I guess in the modern world anyway. Small part that are desperately poor, the mid part that are kind of you know, comfortable, then the, the this end that's desperately rich. Mm-hmm. And he was suggesting that for the church today, which is largely in the middle part, we're middle class, we're comfortable, we're not we're not down this hen. The issue is, is whether we identify with the needs of this end or the needs of that end, the aspirations mm. of that end. Mm. Now, Whether we put our resources to serve those at that part of the bell curve or we, you know, we, we try to get more people into church from the, the other end of the mm. bell curve. And I, for some reason, I, I found that kind of reassuring. Uh, it's a matter of, of identifying with the needs of those who are most desperate to see things change. Uh, even if in our own situation, certainly in my situation, um, I'm doing pretty well with the way things are, that when we share and identify with enemy, we'll begin to have a craving for the justice of God. But of course, victims of injustice can easily become vengeful or hateful or violent. And the next beatitude, I think, summons a very different response. Blessed are the merciful. Or they will receive mercy. In the Bible, the word mercy is most often a description of God. Most references to mercy in the Bible are describing a characteristic of God. So when Jesus summons his hearers to show mercy, he's summoning them to imitate God's mercy. In fact, In Luke's gospel, Jesus puts it as clearly as this Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Twice in Matthew, Jesus quotes Hosea 6 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And in Matthew 23, in that withering attack upon the scribes and Pharisees, he attacks them, amongst other things, for neglecting the weightier matters of the law, which are justice. Mercy and faithfulness. It's because God is merciful that those of us who live under God's reign must be merciful as well. It's an act of loyalty to God. And therefore, it has to correspond with the fullness of God's mercy, not just a grudging, resentful refusal to press charges but a free, boundless release. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. When we hear the the phrase pure in heart, I think we instinctively think of moral purity, maybe even more particularly of sexual purity, a kind of cleanness of thought and speech. But this... Idiom, pure in heart, I think refers to something even more basic than that. So in scripture, as I'm sure you know, the word heart, we've just listened to Barry, St. Barry Maguire singing it, to love the Lord God with all your heart. The word heart refers to the center of the, of the whole being, the, the, the integrating point of human experience. It's kind of the control center uh, from which our thinking and our willing and our feeling and our doing all come from. It's not just a center of emotion, it's the it's kind of the, 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 the thing that holds our human experience together uh, as an integrated whole. Purity of heart, then, is where there's an integration or a consistency between our, our intentions, our thoughts and our actions. I guess another word for it in our way of, um, of, of talking would be to think of purity of heart as a matter of integrity, or sincerity, or genuineness, or authenticity, where outward actions match inward motivations. The opposite to purity of heart is something like pretense, or deceit, or duplicity, or the thing that God up Jesus knows more than anything else, hypocrisy. To be pure in heart is to be transparent and straightforward, to say what you say, to do what you say, to, to do what you say, to say what you do. And so it's not surprising that such people are comfortable in the presence of God. Why? Because they're not trying to hide anything, they're not trying to conceal anything. And so the reward that Jesus promises is totally appropriate. They shall see God. They shall know God truthfully, just as they allow themselves to be known truthfully by God and by others, because of their sincerity and their honesty and their integrity. The next beatitude, I think, points to one of the most astonishing attributes of this God, that they see his commitment to making peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Again, I'm sure you know the word peace or the word shalom in Hebrew. And um, in, in the Bible, in the Old Testament particularly, is not simply the, the absence of war. Uh, conflict theorists today would call that negative peace. It's not simply that there's no more war or violence around. It's the presence of well-being. It's the presence of wholeness. It's the presence of harmony in all our relationships with each other, with the, with the environment, with God, with ourselves. The presence of being connected and, and uh, it's like the old English word, being all right. We're everything about... Our relationships is is right that's what Shalom uh captures that sense of positive peace of course, the entry of sin has shattered the given uh the, the 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 Shalom that God gave in creation, but ever since that happened, the God of peace Paul uses that uh epithet for God in Romans sixteen the God of peace has been actively working to restore peace to this broken distorted violent creation. And Jesus is the ultimate instrument for God's peacemaking in creation. At the birth of Jesus, the angels sang, Glory to God in the highest heaven on earth, peace among those whom he favors. Zechariah picked up this little infant in his arms, and he blessed God for sending the one who has been sent to guide our feet into the way of peace. In his public ministry, Jesus demonstrated and showed, to use his language, the things that make for peace. And through his death and resurrection, he brought peace with God to a strange humanity. And he brought peace between hostile people groups. So in Ephesians 2, Paul speaks of how Jesus died to create in himself one new humanity in place of two, thus making peace. And might reconcile both groups to God in one body, thus putting to death hostility. So, the ministry of Jesus is all about peacemaking. Therefore, in praising peacemakers, Jesus is blessing those who participate in his own great work of peacemaking. And again, note the action emphasis of this uh, beatitude. We're not called to be peace lovers. You know, those who avoid conflict at all costs. Most of us are peace lovers. We're called to be peacemakers. Those who confront conflict and and work for reconciliation. And we could add a term that's become really quite popular, the notion of being peace builders, because that refers to the creation of the sort of systems and structures that enable positive peace to, to exist. You know, the economic systems and so on that enable peace to flourish. Those who are committed to peacemaking and to peace building shall be called the children of God. So the idea of being a child of God means to be like God as an <coughs> ideal child is one who aspires to be like his or her parents. And it implies to be intimate with God just as the child knows his parents. So, intimacy with God here doesn't only come from the spiritual disciplines, it comes from peacemaking. Because, in doing that, in being present uh, as a source of peace in a situation of violence, is to experience the presence of God. And I guess, you know, in a restorative justice realm, I mean, I've seen that so many times that I've come to believe that God is always anonymously present when we work to bring peace. But peacemaking is costly. And so the last beatitude, a a double banger, um, pronounced a blessing on those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who went before you. is an inherent part of the kingdom's progress in the world, and we know this because this was true of the one who brought the kingdom is an inherent part of the kingdom's progress in the world to encounter violence hatred, rejection, and abuse. It happened to Jesus. And it continues to happen to those who identify with Jesus. There's two causes of persecution mentioned in this beatitude. One is because of righteousness. Because of righteousness. Whenever people are committed to seeing God's justice realized in situations of oppression, they will suffer. And because of me, whenever people stubbornly remain faithful to Jesus, in situations where Jesus is rejected, they will suffer. But neither should surprise us, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. God's redemptive work always encounters opposition. But is not a cause for despair. On the contrary, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Present suffering can become meaningful and bearable when we see it as part of the whole course of God's saving action in history, the prophets, and as part of the way leading to future triumph, your reward in heaven. So the Beatitudes presuppose a discipleship community that is prepared to be radically different from the context in which it exists, come what may. As the novelist Flannery O'Connor once said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. Which is why we shouldn't domesticate the Beatitudes too quickly into comforting platitudes. Because when Jesus blesses the poor in spirit, the pure in heart, the merciful and the meek, he's underscoring the importance of character, of personal character, of integrity, of compassion, of humility and sincerity. When he blesses those who grieve over the world's pain, who hunger and thirst for God's justice, who strive to make peace, he blows apart any narrow narrow restriction of the gospel to merely spiritual matters. When he blesses those who are persecuted for the sake of God's justice, he reminds us that serving the kingdom is no Sunday school picnic. So we need God to give us the courage to be different, uh, the strength to suffer, and the discipline to invest ourselves in God's work of renewing and changing the world through the work of Christ.